0: Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 24 through 29, and we're making kind of a a milestone um, this morning as we finish this first chapter of the book of Colossians. Uh, It's taken us a while, right? But it, Colossians is this wonderful, oh I should say, if you don't have a Bible, Um, We'd love to give you one either just to look at this morning as we go through it or to take home on your own. So if you need one, raise your hand. You can certainly use a Bible on your phone, but we have some here that we can give to you um, if we need to. The book of Colossians, it's a powerful little letter. And we've said before it was written to this little church in this little town that no one had ever heard of except that they had a big problem brewing there in Colossae. It was this destructive heresy that actually would become known as the Colossian heresy, and it was a, a false teaching that was threatening to lead the believers there away from the, the sufficiency and from the supremacy and from the centrality of of Jesus Christ to lead them away really from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And so we've watched Paul right in this first chapter as he writes this letter to them. And he's really waging this war for truth on behalf of them. He's trying to sort of draw them back so that they remember when we left off at the end of our text last week in Colossians 1 and verse 23. He prayed that they would continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and that they not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. So this was Paul's reason for writing this letter. And we're going to see as we continue through our text today, it was also one of his main motivations for ministry. But in fact, what we're going to see is that in addition to this very strong driving force, there was yet another force that drove Paul. And that that was, in fact, it was this mystery, if you will, that motivated Paul's ministry. We know that Paul had been entrusted, as we saw last time, with this gospel message, right? With this ministry of reconciliation. Just as we've been entrusted, remember we talked last week, we've been entrusted with this same ministry to take that hope of the gospel message Right, that God in Christ was reconciling things back to himself. That he was repairing what we talked about, that, that cosmic rupture that had occurred because of sin. He was removing all of those obstacles that were there in the way and that were causing people to be alienated from God and enemies of God. And that now, because of that, there was this possibility of this restored and this real relationship with God. Available now to all people because of that sacrificial, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So this is that hope, right? That confident expectation that the gospel provides. And we're the ones now as we follow in those footsteps of the Apostle Paul, right, we now are the ones who make this message and take this message out to a world of people that are so fractured by sin. It's the very highest privilege that we could possibly have in life. And so now really, as Paul just continues on, we're going to see next that he proclaims, Because of this, he now proclaims to these believers in Colossae, we're starting in verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1, he says this, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister. So not only, Paul says, was it his privilege to share the gospel, but he considered it his privilege also, even a joy, to suffer for that same gospel, to suffer for the sake of the church. So a part of this mystery that motivated Paul's ministry was Paul's joy even in the midst of suffering. Remember... We learned that Paul was writing this letter while he was under some sort of a house arrest, kind of a situation down in Rome. He was effectively in prison. He was awaiting his trial for his faith and for his life before the emperor of Rome. And we know from looking at Paul's life that even before this, he had suffered. Remember this list he writes to the Corinthians. He says he'd suffered in labors more abundant, stripes above measure, prisons more frequently, death, deaths often. From the Jews, he said, five times he received 40 stripes minus one, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night in the day he'd spent in the deep, in journeys often, perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren." That's a lot of perils, right, so far weariness and toil, sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst, fastings, cold and nakedness, besides, he says, the other things that come upon me daily, his great concern for all the churches. That's a lot of suffering. I mean, we need a bigger screen. Like, that's an imax size screen of suffering. And yet, what Paul is telling us is that even in the midst of all of these times of trial, Paul could see that his sufferings were working something good for others. They were working something good for the church generally, but even more so, as we look at this text, he seems to say here that for the sake of the believers in Colossae, they were working something more specifically. And that's interesting because, remember we said before, Paul had never actually even been to Colossae. He's never met these Colossians so how was it really that he was suffering for them? And of course in a general sense like we just saw we could say that Paul's suffering and his imprisonment was because of the gospel message that he continually put his life at great risk and of course that led to suffering for the sake of the gospel and that the Colossians had benefited from that. But in a more specific way in this passage Paul is talking to the Colossians about his suffering on their behalf, specifically as Gentiles. Now, remember, he's writing to a church that's made up primarily of people who've been converted to Christ right out of paganism. There was not a very large Jewish population in the city of Colossae. It was very much a Gentile kind of a town. We also remember that the apostle Paul was called by God to take the gospel both to the Jew and to the Gentile, but principally, he was an apostle, he was really the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was called as the apostle to the Gentile world, All of the non-Jewish world, like most of us here in this room this morning. And Paul paid a great price as a result specifically of that calling. He was there in that prison in Rome, specifically, remember, because he had infuriated the Jews back in Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 21? He was arrested on those false charges. And then in chapter 22, remember that he made his defense before this crowd, right? And we saw that the Jews listened to his defense until he got to that one specific part, where he said that God had specifically called him to go to the Gentile world with the love of God. Remember in Acts 21, or 22, starting in verse 21, he's talking about what Jesus said to him. He said, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Then it says, and they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And it was from that moment on that they were determined to destroy him. And then, of course, we remember in the book of Acts, we have this series of bogus trials before these different Roman governors. Paul appeals to Caesar and wins himself a one-way Mediterranean coastal cruise right from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And it was in Rome, ultimately, years after this, where he would pay with his life to be faithful to that calling. And so he says here specifically to these Gentiles, he says, look, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for you. I'm rejoicing in the price of the suffering that I have endured in order to carry the truth of the gospel to you as Gentiles. Paul was able to rejoice as he suffered because he knew that as he did it, he was entering in to the sufferings of jesus now his statement there in verse 24 look at it his statement that he was able to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of christ when we read that you may have said wait a minute right now this is a statement that has puzzled people for centuries since paul first said it because what could possibly be lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So is Paul saying that we need to, through our own suffering, somehow add to the sufferings of Jesus? Well, he's absolutely not saying that. And how do we know he's not saying that? Well, simply because it would contradict everything else that he ever said himself, everywhere else that he ever said anything. In Romans chapter three, first of all, he explains clearly that our righteousness comes to us only as a result of our faith in that finished work of Jesus. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation, fancy big theological word for payment, by his blood. So it's the precious, priceless blood of Jesus which was sufficient to pay that debt that was due. And there is not anything more that we can do to possibly add to that. How do you improve upon perfection, right? It all came by his grace, through our faith. And what what did Jesus say? What were his very final words on the cross in John chapter 19? Three little words, right? It is finished. Which of course we know was really just one word, right? Tetalestai. And literally that's an accounting term that literally means paid in full or the price has been paid in full. So, in the sense of this redemptive aspect of the death of Jesus, there is nothing lacking. There is nothing lacking that Paul thought he had to add to. So, Paul can't be talking about us improving upon what Jesus did on the cross. That sounds ridiculous, because it is ridiculous, right? He suffered once and for all. No man could ever share in those sufferings, and yet there still is a sense in which Jesus still does suffer even today. Because Jesus suffers when we, his people, suffer. And no doubt Paul had remembered back to his own experience with the risen Christ. Remember there on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter nine. When Paul, or Saul, his name then, the Pharisee, remember he was headed up to persecute and to kill Christians in the city of Damascus, Paul was knocked off of his high donkey, remember and Jesus said to him directly, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you, what, persecuting me? So as much as Paul was persecuting the believers within the body of Christ, he was actually persecuting Jesus Christ himself. Right? The head of the church in heaven feels the sufferings of his people that we endure here on earth. And what that means is that until God completes that work of putting all of the enemies of Christ under his feet that even now, Jesus continues to suffer. Even now, in a sense, he continues to undergo affliction. To this very moment, he suffers the rejection of the world. He suffers the daily mocking and the blasphemy as his name is taken in vain. He suffers the persecution that we as his people suffer every single day because of his namesake. And understanding this, Paul is privileged, he says here, to simply bear some of the brunt of that suffering that he knows that Jesus is currently undergoing. Literally what Paul says here is that he was filling up in his turn the leftover parts of the suffering of Christ. Those were his afflictions, right? And it referred to the pressures of Paul's daily life that he endured and that each one of us as Christians endure because we're believers in Jesus. All of that suffering that we might incur, incur because we're living for him and because we're trying to serve him, right? As we live him and serve him, that treatment that the world would dish out to him if he were still here. All those things that the world's systems would do to him, right? The religious systems and the social systems and the political systems, whatever it was that they would do to Jesus if he were still here, now they can only do to us. It's fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said when he said that if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And yet Paul also knew and he promised He wrote to the Corinthians that as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So to whatever degree we are suffering for Jesus, we will also experience the comfort of Jesus. And it's because of this that there are so many times that God will allow situations to come into our lives where our only sense of consolation can only be found through Christ. And so often we think that the only consolation we're going to ever have, the the only relief we're going to have is if our circumstances are changed. And yet God wants to console us right in the midst of our difficult circumstances. And he wants to do it through Jesus Christ. And he wants to do it so that he can continue both that work he's doing in us, but also so that he can strengthen us, so that we'll be able to complete the very unique ministry that God wants to do through each of us. And Paul, particularly, he knew very personally, he knew that this was true practically. He knew that he was suffering. Look back there in the middle of verse 24. He knew that he was suffering, it says, for the sake of his body, right, for the sake of the body of Christ, which is the church, of which, Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. So Paul knew that whatever suffering he had to endure, that it was well, well worth it, because he had been entrusted with this specific stewardship. So part of this mystery that motivated Paul's ministry was not just his joy in suffering, but also this special stewardship that he knew he had. Now, in Paul's time, a steward was somebody who cared for the interests or cared for the property of someone else. When a a man had become so successful, he had too much property and he had too much wealth to look after it and manage it all on his own, he would often hire a person to do that for him. Interestingly, most often, that was a slave. Perhaps it was an educated slave that he was purchased or someone who would be trained to to steward all of that great wealth and who would then make it their own life's work to look after and to faithfully oversee his master's fortune. So this was a, it was a very common, a very critical, and a very crucial role in ancient society. And again, in a general sense, Paul was a steward, just like we are also stewards of the great truths of the gospel message, right? We've been entrusted to to guard that, and to ensure that, and to make sure that our master's commands right, to go therefore into all the world to make sure those wishes are carried out as we distribute that great message. But Paul here is starting to hint at something even more than that. Because notice he says specifically, as we continue on in verse 25, he says this was a stewardship from God which was given to me for you, he says. So some sort of a specific stewardship given to Paul for the Colossian and the Gentile believers specifically, which at the end of verse 25, he says is to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Okay, now this is getting interesting, isn't it? Is it getting interesting? Okay. Okay just say it's getting interesting. Wow, this is so awesome. So it's way too early for a stretch break, right? Paul says kind of mysteriously that there's a mystery that was entrusted to him. Something that had been hidden, it says, for ages and for generations, but now and only now had been revealed fully to the church, his saints, and that it was Paul himself, he was the one through whom God had chosen to reveal it. That was his very unique stewardship. It was the revelation of this special mystery. Now, I think we've mentioned this before, but in the Bible, in particular in the New Testament, when we see that word mystery, it's not talking about something spooky or something scary kind of the way that we might think of that word today. It's referring to some truth that was not known, but now has been made known, right? More specifically, to some kind of truth which was concealed in the Old Testament, but is now revealed in the New Testament, right? It had been hidden from ages and from generations, right? And the greatest of all of those truths is what? It's the gospel itself. Right? God had called this nation of Israel to be his special people. He'd given them this special law, including the the priesthood and the whole sacrificial system. He gave them this wonderful land, as we've just seen in the book of Joshua. He promised them this king who would one day establish this glorious kingdom and fulfill all of these promises that had been made first to Abraham and then to David. The Old Testament prophets at length, talked about this Messiah who would come and who would rule and who would reign, but who would also somehow suffer and even die. And so the Jews, even the priests and the rabbis, they simply could not explain that seeming contradiction because they couldn't understand it then without the cross right? They couldn't understand it without the cross. It was a mystery that the Messiah would first have to suffer before he could enter into glory. It was a mystery that was then made known through Jesus Christ, and it was Paul, in great part, that the Lord would use to reveal that mystery to us, or as Paul says himself, to fulfill the the word of God. Now the word fulfill has this idea of filling up or to make complete, right? To declare fully or to make known because it was the apostle Paul in a very unique way who fulfilled the word of God for us doctrinally, right? He's the one that kind of filled out or fleshed out our faith, right? If you count the book of Hebrews, which I would, Then what that means is that Paul wrote 14 of the 21 letters found in the New Testament. And of course there are other great truths from all of the other apostles in their letters and each one of those letters is inspired by God and they reveal very important New Testament truth from God and and wonderful things about God and yet none of those letters contain to the same extent the kind of insight to these great mysteries of the faith, like we find in the writings of the Apostle Paul. We think about these detailed explanations of the Old Testament sacrifices and of all of those types. And all of those shadows and telling us exactly how they point to Jesus Christ. All of the the deep theological implications that come as a result of the work of Jesus on the cross. The explanations of our redemption and substitution and reconciliation and justification and sanctification and glorification and all of those things. The revelation and the explanation of all of these truths fill up and they make complete both the word of God and our faith in God. And that was that special, unique stewardship that had been entrusted to the apostle Paul to communicate and reveal these things to the saints. And just quickly, we should note this, this whole idea of filling up or making complete, again, As Paul talks about this idea, he's hitting at the heart of this heresy that was brewing there in Colossae because these false teachers, remember, they claimed that somehow they had this secret knowledge and that only they had this secret knowledge, only they had all the knowledge and the complete knowledge. And in fact, they misused the whole idea of that same word mystery But they talked about mysteries referring to the strange kind of inner secrets of all of their own strange sort of secret religions. And Paul says no to all of that. He says that all the fullness of the mystery has been fulfilled. It's all been fully revealed To the saints, it's been revealed to those who placed their saving faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in the very next verse. He's going to show them the final great truth of this final great mystery found in Jesus. It really kind of forms the capstone of all of the New Testament revelation, right? It's the final piece of the puzzle. And in a way, what he's about to tell them, this final mystery, really completes this whole sort of circle of subjects that's covered in all of the writings of the New Testament and is contained in the gospel itself. Because look what he writes in verse 27. He says, to the saints, so not to the Gnostics, but to the saints through the Apostle Paul, it says in verse 27, to them... God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in a Gentile, the hope of glory. So this is the pinnacle if you will, of New Testament truth. Notice how Paul says it's the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's not just the mystery. It's not just the riches. It's not just the glory. But Paul's kind of just piling word after word upon word to really emphasize the fact that this is nothing less than a glorious truth that deserves all of our closest attention, especially as Gentiles. Because this, in this mystery, there are actually sort of two mysteries that come together to form the great mystery of the church, the great mystery of the body of Christ. And this is a mystery we know that Paul more fully explains. He more fully explains this whole mind-blowing mystery in its fullness when he writes to the Ephesians. He says to them something very similar. He says, you've heard of the stewardship of the grace of God which was given to me for you, another Gentile church. He says, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So this was the great and glorious truth of the gospel. This was the mystery that Paul was commissioned to bring to the Gentile world, that they could also be part of the promises of God. That they would be united together into this one spiritual body, which we call the church, which is the people of God. And understand this was a mind blowing concept at that time. It was an absolute mind blower for Paul as well in the best sense of the word. This was the thing that filled Paul's heart with absolute joy. Now, you students of the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament, the fact that God had an interest in the Gentiles, that was absolutely taught. The fact that God even loved the Gentiles and that he was brokenhearted over the sin of the Gentiles, that also absolutely taught throughout the Old Testament. There was nothing mysterious about that. All of the prophets of the Old Testament, they all taught that. But the mystery concerning the Gentiles that was later revealed in Christ through his life and through his gospel, and then that was explained by Paul in his writings, that great mystery was that God loved the Gentiles just as much as he loved his own special people, the Jews. And that the Jews themselves were just as in need of a salvation as those Gentiles were. And that God had chosen to provide both Jew and Gentile alike, provide that they were saved in the very same way, and that when whether a Jew or a Gentile believed in Jesus, whenever they put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins, that they then both would become part an equal part of this same family called the body of Christ. Right, to the Galatians, Paul said that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, which simply means Gentile, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's the thing that absolutely fried the Jews. Right there that God would first of all save the Gentiles, then that they would be a part of his promises in the very same way that the Jews themselves were. That these Gentiles now would somehow be Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because the Gentiles to the Jews, they were like dogs. Right? Because the Jews looked at the Gentiles and they said, those people simply live on the level of a dog. Right? So their own rabbis and the religious leaders actually called them Gentile dogs. Because they just, you know, whatever it was that their flesh told them to do, that's what the Gentiles did. And so this just got into the mindset of the Jews for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so it was this incomprehensible thing that God would be willing to not only save a Jew and a Gentile in the same way, but then begin to now unite them and make them equal members into some sort of the same family. And then on top of all of that, For these Gentiles, right, the great glory of this mystery, look at the end of verse 27 again, talking about the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in a Gentile, right? Messiah in a Gentile, the hope of glory. That God the Holy Spirit would be willing to indwell even a Gentile, right? To come and to live in them at the moment of their conversion, right? To regenerate them and to empower them and to dwell inside of them. It was just what Jesus promised in John 14. He talked about the spirit coming, the spirit of truth, and he says that he dwells with you and that he will be in you. Right? Or Paul wrote to Titus, he talks about his mercy that saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit of Jesus himself dwelling in a Gentile to renew and to regenerate and to give new life. Now, most of us, as we said, we're Gentiles. And so we just don't really get this. I can tell by the looks on some of your faces. Why does he keep talking about this? This, Right? This is not such a big deal. But why would this be so incredibly unthinkable to the Jews? Because as Gentiles, we come to know the Lord and we say, yes, I realize I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I want to be forgiven of those sins. And we are. And it is an absolute miracle. Amen? And we get all of that, sort of. But we really don't. Because we haven't, like the Jews of the Old Testament, like the Jews who would have been reading Paul's letters for the first time, we had not been steeped our entire lives in the holiness of God. Just steeped in, you know, the the ark of the covenant, you know, above which the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt among his people there in the tabernacle first and in the temple later. Steeped in this idea of the the day of atonement on which one person, right, the high priest on only that one day out of the entire year and only after special sacrifices were made for his sins, only on that one day could he go into that holy place into the holy presence of the Lord. One day out of every year. You see in the Bible people were struck down because they reached out and got too close To the holiness of God. I mean, this whole idea of God's holiness, this was a gigantic reality to them. They had a a deep appreciation for it. They had an awe and a reverence of it. And then Jesus comes along and he comes onto the scene and he starts talking to sinners about the fact that they could be reborn of God. And then Paul comes along and he talks about the fact that God is willing as a part of that rebirth to come in not only into the life of a Jew in particular, but also to come into the life and into the heart of a Gentile dog and to live there and to make that Gentile into the very temple of the Holy Spirit himself. To make each one of us into the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of the temple. You know, that's exactly what he makes us when he comes into our life and he indwells us by his Holy Spirit. And you think about just that on a personal level. You know, that God would look at you or especially that he would look at me at our very worst. And he would say, you know what? I'm willing not only to forgive him, I'm willing not only to save him, but I am willing to indwell him. I'm willing to go into that dirty, filthy place in his heart, and I'm gonna clean that up by my holy presence there. And to place him into my special family, even as I do it. That was the mystery. The weight of the mystery that Paul was faithful to take to these despised Gentiles. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And just, again, pause for a moment to think about who it is we're talking about here, right? Who Paul has spent the better part of this chapter writing about. We are talking about the very glory of God himself, The one who Paul said was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, the one through whom everything was made visible, invisible, in heaven, on earth. All things were made by him. All things were made through him. All things were made for him. That in him, all things consist. Remember, he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the church. He's the one who gave his life to reconcile us back to God. And this is the person, Paul says, who is now in you. This is the miracle, right? This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's in you, he's not just near you, he's not just with you, and those are both great things, amen, to have Jesus near us, and to have Jesus with us, but the absolute ultimate is to have Jesus in us. To have him actually living his life inside of yours. We couldn't say it enough ways, could we, to try to explain The miracle that Christ lives inside of each one of us as his people individually. This is that personal, individual encounter where God himself enters the soul of a person. And then it's through that indwelling presence inside of us that he transforms us, right? That we're being made, as Paul talks about, transformed from glory to glory. He says, we all with unveiled face, we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So we are each being transformed daily. Some of us a little more slowly than, than we'd like, But we are each being transformed daily, the Bible says, more and more into the image of Jesus, right? That glory that's there on the inside is working its way to the outside. And in as much as we feed that life of the spirit and we put the emphasis and the focus on that process, as much as we do that, then Jesus who is in us will start to emanate out of us. Right? The more time we spend in the glory of his presence, the more that glory starts to be evident on the outside in our lives. And the more he starts to manifest himself through us and through our speech and through our actions and our behavior and even just through our countenance. You know what I'm talking about. It's that glow or that sparkle that you can see in the eyes of a fellow believer. That's the sign, isn't it, that we have the hope of glory. And remember, hope in the New Testament doesn't mean hope like we think, right? We think about hope as something that we want to happen, but we're we're not really sure is gonna happen. But in the New Testament economy and in the writings of the New Testament, hope has an absolute certainty to it. It's literally a confident expectation. So we have a, a confidence, right? Christ in you, the hope, right? The confidence of glory. The confidence of that Christ-likeness that the glory of the Lord is going to manifest himself through us and that hope ultimately of that final transformation of us into his image. That's what the Bible calls glorification. So we're saved Right, which is actually one thing, but it's a three-part process, isn't it? We've been justified. That's our position now in Christ. We're being sanctified, right? That's the process by which we're becoming more holy, That where that glory is working its way to the outside. And someday, eventually, we will be glorified fully in heaven. So how do I even know I'm gonna make it to heaven? Well, because that's where glorification actually occurs and Christ in me is the hope of that. It's the confident expectation that that is precisely where we're headed. So the hope of glory means the confidence of that glory that he dwells inside of me and I have absolute confidence and total assurance that heaven is in my future because of Jesus. And so Paul now, he sums up this whole thing, right? You said amen before. Wait till you get to this part, right? The mystery that motivated Paul, he had this joy and suffering. He had this special stewardship. He had this mystery that he was revealing, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he finishes up next by very powerfully proclaiming, look at verses 28 and 29. He says, him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, he says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So the Apostle Paul knew that he had a God-given calling on his life and a God-given responsibility in his life as a leader and as a teacher of God's people. He says to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He knew that one day he would stand before the Lord and give an account of his faithfulness to that calling and to that particular stewardship, how it was that he carried out that task. In Hebrews chapter 13, it speaks of pastors and teachers, and it says that they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. And can I just tell you that that is a heavy responsibility? Right, to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Perfect, I can barely worry about myself, right? But here's the good news, right? That word perfect doesn't really mean perfect in the sense that we understand the word perfect. Because what it means is it means mature. It means complete. So Paul's responsibility, my responsibility is to present every man mature in Christ Jesus. And again Paul uses that word partly because it was a favorite word of those same false teachers. They used it to describe a student who wasn't just a beginner but now had become mature because they'd been fully instructed in the secrets of this secret religion and they taught that there were only a few who could get or would get to that place because the true way of salvation was so complicated that it could only be understood by a select few who made up a kind of a spiritual aristocracy. But notice Paul says just the opposite. He says that this wonderful work of becoming mature or perfect in Christ Jesus, that it was intended for every man, right? For every person can be that. And so Paul says he worked to the best of his human ability. He even worked beyond it. He says he worked according to the power of the Spirit, right? As the Spirit worked in him, Paul worked to make sure he did all he could to help all of these believers grow in Christ. He says in verse 28, he was warning every man. He was teaching every man, right? He's warning the unsaved of the awful wrath that was to come upon them. He was teaching the saints the great truths of the Christian faith. But also, as we see here, he also was warning his fellow believers. That's the point of this whole letter to the Colossians, isn't it? By and large, we're going to see it's a letter of warning. Because there is absolutely a place where we need to warn people, even now who are in the church, that there are plenty of things that are going to try to pull us away from Jesus. There are things that are gonna distract us potentially, that there's this constant effort on the part of our enemy to eclipse Christ even amongst his own people and to get us off going into some other direction. And so Paul says we warn and we teach in all wisdom. And how is it that he says he does that? Look back at the very beginning of verse 28, speaking of Jesus, Paul says very simply what? He says, him we preach. So him we preach to perfect every person. This is the message that we preach. This is the subject that we teach. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. Right? Jesus is the message of the church. The message of the church is Jesus. It's that great gospel of the Son of God, the great Savior, and everything then that has to do with him. Right? From the beginning of the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, we want to preach Jesus on every single page. And that's why we open up the Bible together every time we get together. That's why we go through the word of God, because we believe that God's word, Hebrews 4, is living and powerful. We believe that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We believe that it pierces to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. We believe that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We believe that this word is not just informative, but we believe it to be transformative. And so we give our attention to the teaching of it, and of course, to the living out of it, because this alone is the message that we need to be preaching. But listen, I'm going to say what I'm about to say, not to be critical, but I'm going to say it because I believe it's crucial. Because I can tell you right now that there are lots of churches all across the land. They are preaching but they're not preaching Jesus Christ. They're preaching something, but they're preaching something else. And Jesus is here, right? He's here in little smatterings, maybe a scripture verse over there or a scripture verse over here. But that's a different thing being preached than Jesus Christ. There's a different thing being preached, whether it's politics, or self-help, or social justice, or critical race theory, or climate change, and that is not the calling of the Church of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, when we get off of our course, and we start to preach this, or we start to preach that, here's the truth, there are plenty of other entities within a society that can do that. And they absolutely should do that, But none of them can do what only the church can do. And only the church can do what only the church can do because only the church can preach the gospel. And this is one of the reasons why I have such a strong conviction. You know, I am never going to get up here in this pulpit every Sunday morning and give you yet another rundown of the news of the previous week. Because you can watch all the news that you want to back at home. You can get it in any flavor that you want to find it. All those news agencies are doing a great job, right? It's 24-7. And they just tell the same story over and over and over again for 24 hours straight. And by the end of it, you're out of your mind and you're totally crazy and you're upset. But at least you got all the news. But what you didn't get was the good news. Because they are not telling you the gospel. They're not telling you about Jesus Christ. They're not telling you about the hope of heaven. They're not telling you what the church is supposed to be telling you. And yet there's parts of the church today that seem to be confused and think that we've become a news outlet and that we're just here to somehow regurgitate what it is we heard on the news and tack a Bible verse somewhere onto the end of it. And it's a tragedy and it flies in the face of what Paul said here that he did. He said, him we preach we preach Jesus. Of course, there are things in preaching him that we are going to cause us, we're going to have to address some cultural issues, but we will always address them through the lens of the gospel, or we might more probably address them in the e-bulletin, right? Something like that. But on a Sunday morning, that is reserved for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is a place where Christ is preached because to do anything less than that is to degrade this pulpit and the purpose of the church itself. We have this whole Bible, don't we? 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three continents in three different languages with no contradictions and one central theme and that's Jesus Christ and it's him that we preach. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because really, what better message could there possibly be? What more important message could there possibly be? What more critical or timely message could there possibly be for our world in this moment in our culture than that message? And we need to be faithful to that stewardship which we've been entrusted, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. That's the mystery. Right? The mystery is Christ in you or that he will come into you. right? That he wants to come into and live inside of you. And this is absolutely, it was revolutionary. Right? It was revolutionary in Colossae. It was revolutionary in Ephesus. It was revolutionary in Hierapolis and Laodicea. All of those surrounding regions where Paul's message was going out. It was a revolution and it should be no less a revolution today as well. And we need to pray that it becomes that kind of a revolution again. That this kind of a radical conversion could happen even to the filthiest of gentile dogs and as we close this morning just think with me for a second just think if you can I'm sure you can think of somebody you know Maybe it's a specific person you know or a kind of person you know who is so completely, they seem to be so completely swept away in the things that are happening in our culture right now and the absolute craziness of where this world is headed. And you just think of that person, right, who seems so far out there, that person who seems so lost, that person or that group of people where we just look and we say, man, those people are You know whatever they are right just like the jews thought about the gentiles living like dogs we say of that group of people we say you know what there's just nothing for them here with god but then we remember this great mystery the great mystery yes that god can save them yes that christ could actually dwell in them yes that he would actually dwell in them and become their hope of glory and this is why we can never give up that hope because we alone have the gospel of hope and it is precisely why we can't dare preach anything other than this same gospel Christ in you the hope of glory that was the mystery that motivated Paul's ministry And so likewise, of course, it should be that very same mystery that motivates our ministry as well. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, so much. We thank you for the great encouragement that your word provides to us, Lord. We thank you for the insight that your spirit gives us. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would take these truths and you would implant them deeply within each of our hearts. Lord, that we wouldn't leave this place without the same kind of a deep burden, Lord, for those who are still searching and those who are still seeking, Lord, who don't have that hope of glory, Lord, because Christ is not in them yet. And so Father, we pray for those who might be here this morning in that place Lord, who may be feeling the tug of your spirit even now on their hearts, Lord, we pray that you'd continue to draw them unto yourself. If that's you this morning and you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, that Jesus Christ isn't in you, he's not dwelling inside of you, we would encourage you to come forward as we sing this last worship song and simply talk to one of the prayer counselors or, or just turn to the person next to you and say, I don't get this, but I want to have it. Jesus wants to do that deep work in your hearts, even this morning. Father, for those of us who are already in that place, Lord, that Christ is in us, we pray, Lord, that that process, as his glory is being worked to the outside of us, Lord, that we would be faithful to that, Lord, that we'd be focused on it, and Lord, that we'd be faithful to that stewardship that you've entrusted to each one of us to share that same hope of glory with a world that so desperately needs to hear some good news. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand together and let's worship the Lord.